I love home makeover shows. I don't even feel like it's a conscious choice. I'll be sitting in the dentist's office and I'm just glued to the television on the wall because I can't wait to see if they're going to do an open floor concept. They do every time. Uh, (laughs) But my favorite part is the very end when they pan across every room and they show you the before and the after. It's just amazing what they do with these spaces. It's the same foundation, the same exterior walls for the most part, but just a complete and utter transformation, a reinvention of the inside. But no matter how much I like to see the before and after, when I start my own home makeover projects, (laughs) I realize how difficult they are. They, uh, they take more time, they're more complex, they, I mean, they take longer than an hour episode with commercial breaks, right? Um, I think that, that we can like the idea of a makeover, but when we realize how much work it is, our ideas get to, they become like a little bit smaller. Like, one day I'm going to knock out this wall, but I'm going to put a plant here right now. <laughs> One day I'm going to put a window here, but I'm just going to hang a mirror here for now. (laughs) I think it's kind of human nature to like to see makeovers, a transformation from the old to the new. We just want someone else to do it for us (laughs) and to pay for it. Um, But I don't think it's such a bad idea that that our makeover dreams get a little bit smaller. I mean, if we have a, a roof over our heads, I think we're doing pretty good. Um, but instead of wanting an open floor concept in my own home, I would like a makeover in my life, uh, in my inclinations, in my tendencies. I'd like someone to come into my life and tear down the things that don't need to be there and build up the things that should be there. I want to I want a makeover of the life of our church, a makeover of Grant County and the addiction and the poverty and the walls of hostility that seem to exist in our community. I want to see a makeover of humanity in general, like how we treat each other and and the world that we live in. I I want to see a, a makeover of how we view our bodies and sexuality and identity and marriage and power. I want to see a makeover of the entire church and its leaders and its gatherings and its idols. I want to see a makeover of the lives of my family and my friends. I can see it. I can see love where there is hate. I can see humility where there's defensiveness. I can see healing where there's abuse. I can see freedom where there's bondage and places of safety where people feel afraid. I can see food where there's hunger. I can see a place with no more war, no more pain, where Christ is finally seated among his people once and for all. We all like makeovers. Sometimes they just feel impossible. In today's text, Jesus does a bit of a makeover. 
he enters the temple, which in John's gospel he calls my father's house. And he sees what he calls a marketplace. And instead of using a sledgehammer and a crowbar, thank goodness, he opts for a whip made of ropes. And he starts chasing out the merchants and the dealers and the sheep and the cattle. This is one of the few stories that show up in all four Gospels, except rather controversially, John puts this story smack dab at the front of his Gospel, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put it at the end on Monday of Holy Week. John writes a poem about Jesus coming into the world. Jesus gets baptized. He picks up some friends. He goes to a wedding, and then he goes to the temple. You're going to waste a lot of time trying to figure out like who got it right. Um, some commentators will even suggest like maybe he cleansed the temple twice. Um, but John's take is only a problem if you're expecting John to write chronologically. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to do this. For the most part, similar beginning, middle, and end. And they were all written around the same time, 30 to 40 years after uh, Jesus' ascension. John, on the other hand, wouldn't write his gospel for another 30 to 40 years after that. So to give you some framework, most of the New Testament was written by the time John's putting together his gospel. The church had had 60 to 80 years to form its traditions, its rhythm, its weekly gathering, baptism, communion. These are all things that are regularly practiced. So John expects that his readers know the newspaper version of Jesus' life. And so like any good creative storyteller, John isn't too concerned about chronological dates and times. Rather, he is a theological writer. He is making claims by the order in which he writes. So we shouldn't look at this as a mistake or like John just need to fit it in somewhere. There is significance. There's a reason. Right before the story, Jesus goes to a wedding where he turns water into wine. And Steve has preached on this in the past and said that John includes this here to, to reveal the archetype of all of Jesus' miracles to follow, that Jesus is about transformation. And he doesn't need to make new stuff out of nothing like he did in the first creation, but he's going to take what's already there, like water, and utterly transform it into something like wine. And then John takes us to the temple. Now, it's important to point out that this is the temple. This isn't just some synagogue. It's not a church on the street corner like college church. There is one Jewish temple, and it is on the Mount of Jerusalem. It is the heart of the Jew because it is the place where God has promised to live in the midst of his people. It's the place where heaven and earth overlap. So why a makeover in the temple? Well, the easy answer is Jesus was going to make over the Jewish law. He was going to make over the Jewish worship practices. He was going to abolish the temple building itself, which is True, he tells this to the woman at the well in just a couple of chapters. But after Jesus accuses the people of turning his father's house into a marketplace, John references a prophecy from Psalm 69. He says, 
passion or zeal for my father's house will consume me. Except John got it wrong. Actually, Psalm 69.9 says, passion for my father's house has consumed me. John makes this phrase future tense. Again, John is writing to people who know full well that Jesus died. He's not trying to hide it for a shock factor. Rather, John is making the claim that Jesus' passion, his zeal, his jealousy for his father's house is going to kill him. Jesus is going to die for a temple makeover. This seems a little extreme, right? <laughs> like it's confusing. In a couple chapters, Jesus is going to tell the woman at the well that it doesn't matter where you worship, here, there, wherever, just worship in spirit and in truth. And yet, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be consumed. The word literally means to be devoured by a passion for my father's house. And this is where we find today's biblical sign or motif or thread, the temple. Whenever they start a makeover on one of these houses, these houses, I mean, for the most part, they need a makeover. Um, like no one's afraid to put a dent in the wall. Um, but these houses didn't start that way. No one built the house to be in shambles. At some point, these houses, I mean, they could have been the, the finest house on the block. <laughs> and so if Jesus is willing to die for a makeover of his father's house, then I think we would be wise to look back at the first temple. But I want to go further back than first Kings where Solomon builds the temple, further back than the end of Exodus where Moses sets up the tabernacle. And I want to go to page one of our Bibles. But first I want to give you a little context. Genesis 1 is being written uh, within the ancient Near East. Uh, the Hebrew people would have been well aware of the Mesopotamian people and their practices. These are cultures like Egypt, where they spent 400 years, and Assyria and Babylon. So their worldview comes from a similar train of thought. If you need uh, rain, here's a god. If you need fertility, here's a god. If you need victory, here's a god. And when you had a god, you built a temple to house their presence on earth. And when the structure of a particular temple had been built, these ancient Near East cultures would have an inauguration or an initiation ceremony. Typically, these ceremonies were seven days, sometimes seven weeks, seven years, but a set of seven and each day, different items would be brought into the temple and consecrated until the climax, day six, when they would bring in the image or the idol, it's the same word in Hebrew, of the God, and the priests would have a spiration ceremony. They would literally breathe on this idol image, and they'd carve open its eyes and carve open its ears. And it was believed at that point that wherever that idol image went, the presence of that God went with it. And then on day seven, they had a party. They rested from their work because everything was put in order this was the way of temples in the ancient Near East. 
So in this light, Genesis is less of a documentary and more of a worship service. It is a temple inauguration of the world where every part of the universe is consecrated for a right and a good function within God's cosmic temple palace. You can almost hear the the Hebrews mocking uh, other nations saying, you have temple after temple for your gods that you had to build with your own hands. Our God built his own temple and doesn't have four walls. Our God's temple is the cosmos. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Isaiah 66, heaven is your throne room and the earth is your footstool. But not only this, the Hebrew continues, we don't have to carve open the eyes and the ears of an idol image for our God. Our God made his own image to house his presence here on earth. He made us. Humanity was created to bear, to manifest, to, to bring forth the image of God in the world. We were supposed to be living, breathing, walking, talking images of God. But as the story goes, Adam and Eve chose to distort this function by manifesting a false image. And in so doing, they took the power and the authority that God had given them to reign and rule in his temple palace. They gave it to the evil powers of this world. And therefore, God had to send them out of the garden. He separated the space of heaven and the space of of earth. But not only this, in Genesis 5, the author is about to start a genealogy of Adam. And, and he begins by reminding the reader that when God created humans, he, cre- he created them to be like himself. But then almost ironically, he starts the genealogy by saying, when Adam was 130 years old, he became the father to a son that was just like him in his very image. So early on, we get this picture of a humanity that was meant to bear the image of God, but is now stuck in this cycle of replicating their own marred image. But God didn't leave humanity alone. Uh, he, he makes a covenant with Abraham that he's going to bless the nations of the world through his family. And eventually he gives this family the instructions to build the tabernacle, which is like a portable tent version of the temple, uh, and then the temple itself. And I'll add here that both the tabernacle and temple are filled with so much garden imagery. Uh, it's a picture of Eden. Um, but God does this so that he can, the people can know that he is still among his people. 
But these were never the point. They, they, they're microcosms. They, they point to what God had always desired from the beginning of time to dwell among his people throughout creation and for humanity to bear his image, to carry within themselves the very glory of God's presence. And so when Jesus cleanses the temple in John 2, yes, he's revealing that he's going to make over the Jewish law. Yes, he's going to uh, make over their worship practices. And yes, he's going to abolish the temple building itself. But all of this is going to happen because he's going to make over all creation. The original cosmic temple. This is why John includes this here. He's revealing the extent to which Jesus is going to renew all things like water into wine. He's going to take the original cosmic temple and utterly transform it. After he cleanses the temple, though, the Jewish leaders, rightly so, come up and say, hey, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, then show us a miraculous sign to prove it. And Jesus says, all right, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. Which they obviously go into this whole bit on it saying 46 years to build a temple, this is impossible. Uh, and, and even though I think John might assume that we could put two and two together, he's sure to clarify that when Jesus said this temple, he meant his body. This tells us two things. John's saying that first, Jesus is a new type of, of human. He hints at this earlier when he says, the word became flesh and made his home among us. The phrase is literally, he tabernacled among us. Jesus housed the glory of God in the tent of a human body, just like we were supposed to do from the beginning. Paul calls him the visible image of the invisible God the last and final Adam, the new humanity meant to bring forth the new creation. Second, John is revealing the means and the model for makeover. Death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There has to be a deconstruction of the old in order to reconstruct the new. So Jesus steps into creation like a house in shambles, condemned to be torn down by the evil powers we gave it over to, and he takes on the mess. He takes on the full fate of it. He lets it consume him. Or does he consume it? <laughs> because in doing this, he is able to put to death this cycle of marred image bearing. And simultaneously, he's able to tear down the wall that separated heavenly space from earthly space. And he does this so that he can begin building heavenly things on earth. And not only this, but that he can start building heavenly things in and through us again. Right after the first creation account, we get a second account or another perspective. 
it reads that after God had made the heavens and the earth, there wasn't anyone to cultivate the soil. Catch it? God's perfect ideal creation was not a static, self-perpetuating home that never needed upkeep. Keep reading. So he created people and placed them in the garden to tend and watch over it. These are the same verbs used to describe the role of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple. God's ideal creation included human participation in his creative work. To take the things that are in front of us and to cultivate more life and food and order and to expand the garden, to fill the earth and to multiply. But if you hadn't noticed, that's not what's happening. (laughs) The earth is a mess and there's a lot of work to do. And even though I I can have a very clear vision of what I think the makeover is, over time I feel like my ideas of transformation get smaller and smaller. I find myself just wishing someone else would do this and pay for it. (laughs) Or I just feel like it's impossible. But as I watch the biblical narrative unfold, I can't escape the reality that for some reason, God wants us to be a part of this makeover. And he confirms it by his spirit. When the tabernacle and the temple were completed, a cloud so thick the priests couldn't continue their work descended upon it. When the tabernacle and the temple were complete, just like on the last day of creation, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, his spirit rested among his people. In the same chapter that John tells us that Jesus tabernacled among us, he includes John the Baptist's account of Jesus' baptism. And he says, I saw the Spirit descending like a dove, and it rested on him. Forty days after Jesus' resurrection, he ascends into a cloud and He does this, as Paul says in Ephesians, so that he can fill the entire universe with himself. And that's exactly what happens 10 days later. What looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and rested on all the believers gathered. Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that walked with humanity in the garden, that descended on the tabernacle, the temple, and on Jesus Christ himself, now rests in us. And it is not a passive resting. It is very active, (laughs) equipping us to be a part of this extreme home makeover cosmic temple edition. (laughs) 
So how do we participate? Three things, blueprints, materials, and the location. What's the blueprint of this makeover? Jesus Christ. He is the temple. He is Eden. He is God's true image and ours. If you want to know how to live a truly human life, look at Jesus. In John's first epistle, he says, in this world, we are like Jesus. So no matter what your job is, your title, your roles and responsibilities, our first vocation is to be like Jesus. Spirit-filled bodies imaging God wherever we go. This doesn't mean that we forsake our jobs and responsibilities. It just means that they become secondary or they become a means, a vehicle through which we bear God's image. Just like a, a makeover project uh, requires numerous types of, of people, like you have contractor and carpenter and plumbers and electricians, they each have a very significant and important role in the project. But each of them, their first and primary vocation is to bear the image of the blueprint. If a plumber used a different blueprint or no blueprint at all, you might have a house filled with toilets in every room. <laughs> so keep looking at the blueprint. Maybe this means that we stop reading our Bibles for a moral code and read it as a window into the nature of God witnessed in the humanity of Jesus Christ. Maybe it means that we start our days by praying through our calendar. We ask God, how do you want to use me and all my specific roles and responsibilities? How do you want to use me to bear your image? Maybe I need to build love in this conversation. Maybe I need to plant joy in this workspace. Maybe I need to image peace in this relationship. And then at the end of the day, after your meetings, after you're out of the classroom, after you put the kids to bed, maybe you can ask yourself the difficult questions of what seeds did I plant today? What's going to grow in that space because I was there? Is it patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness? Or did I plant something that is not of the Spirit? The fruit-bearing humanity of Jesus Christ is our blueprint. So the call and the invitation of all of us in this room is to first, in all we do, bear the image of God. So we know the blueprint, but what are the materials? Well, we can find this by looking at the blueprint. Uh, Jesus has two things. He has the spirit and he has a body that to this day still has the DNA of his mother. When Jesus resurrected, he wasn't a disembodied spirit. Like water to wine, it was the same material, just utterly transformed. 
It should also be noted that when he resurrected, he didn't come back with amputations. <laughs> what I mean to say is uh, he, the spirit brought all of him back. I'll say it this way. There is no part of Jesus' body that the spirit didn't find useful in bearing the image of God. How else is the fruit of the Spirit manifested? Does love just appear? Does joy just show up? It's through the body, through an embrace, a gentle touch, kind words, a patient disposition. The idea that our bodies are useless or a burden or a prison, it's not Christian. <laughs> it's pagan. <laughs> There is a way for us to use our body not of the Spirit, but there's a way for us to use it in the Spirit. My hand can be used for things out of the Spirit, but there's a way for me to use it in the Spirit. My tongue can produce words not of the Spirit, but it can also produce words of the Spirit. Paul uses the metaphor of clothing in Colossians. He says, take off the old nature and put on the new nature, which is Christ. It's like we're, we're wearing Christ everywhere we go. We take him everywhere that we go. Since I've been alive, I feel like the church has spoken about spirituality as though it is separate from or even in tension with the body. But what we see in Jesus Christ, our blueprint, is that the spiritual life is a physical life in the spirit. Last thing, God has given us the blueprints, he's given us the materials, and he has given us the location. Throughout the biblical narrative, we get a couple different terms to describe the function of humanity. We've talked about image bearing, uh, Later, we get the people of God and the prophets. There's language of being a representative of his name uh, or priests of God. The gospels give us um, children of God, witnesses, and the epistles use all of those, plus this word citizenship. I think the most often quote is Philippians 3.20. We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ is. And I think in our Western culture, it's easy for us to think that that means, well, I'm on earth now, but I'm a citizen of heaven. So one day Jesus is going to come back. He's going to scoop me up and take me to my heavenly home and maybe blow up the earth or something like that. Um, but this isn't the pattern that we see throughout scripture. And it really devalues the point of this life and this creation that at one point God said, was good. And so I think it's important to point out that when Paul's writing this, he's writing it to the Philippians, and Philippi was a Roman colony. The people, the, the people who were in Philippi were Roman citizens. And the goal wasn't that you just work in Philippi until it was time to retire and then go back to Rome. And in fact, N.T. Wright says that Rome at this time was overpopulated and under-resourced, so no one would have wanted to go back to Rome. 
No, the, the goal was to extend the Roman Empire to Philippi, to build Roman homes and Roman roads, to, to bring the Roman way of life to Philippi. This is what Paul means when he says we're citizens of heaven. Not that we're going to retire and run away to heaven, but that as citizens of heaven, our job is to make earth an extension of heaven. And if Philippi were to ever get into trouble, if any enemy forces were to move in, the emperor from Rome would come, but not to collect them all and run off to safety. He would come to establish once and for all his rule and his reign. That's what the rest of this passage says. We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ is, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. The location that God wants to make over is right here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in Grant County, in our homes, on our streets, in our schools, our businesses, as it is in heaven. I told you at the beginning that my favorite part of makeover shows is the end when they show you the finished project. And uh, John actually gets to see this in his revelation. And what does he see? Resurrection. He says the old earth had passed away. It perished, it died. But just like the body of Jesus, there was a resurrected earth, the resurrected heaven. And there was no temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. John writes, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm doing a makeover. I'm resurrecting everything. I'm making everything new. And then he said, it is finished. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end. Friends, God has given us the blueprints, He's given us the materials, and He's given us the location. And He's inviting us to be a part of this makeover project. So, can we consecrate our whole life to this purpose? Maybe something else has taken the front seat of your vocation. Maybe it's a, a, a job or an amount of money or something in your identity. Maybe it's just something that needs to take its place behind your primary vocation of image bearing. Or maybe it's something that has no place in the blueprint at all. Then you stop doing it. <laughs> but consecrate what you do. Ask God 
to let you see what it would be like to use that as a means for image bearing. Or maybe it's your body. Maybe uh, your feet haven't taken you where you need to go. Maybe your hands haven't been kind and good. Maybe your eyes haven't looked where the Spirit has looked. Consecrate it. Ask the Holy Spirit, what would it be like for you to fully possess this part of me? How do I take the things that you've put in front of me? How do I tend and care for them using my body? Or maybe it's a place, maybe your office, your home, the ordinary place where you run errands. Where have you not considered God's kingdom coming? Where has the fruit of the spirit not been planted? Where have you left out when you pray thy kingdom come? Consecrate that place. We all like makeovers and they are a lot of work, but God is inviting us and equipping us to participate with him by living like Jesus in a body filled with his spirit right where we are.